0: Hey, everybody. We are going to talk about unicorns and uh, I hope you didn't think I was talking about tech unicorns because I'm talking about the real deal here, all right, the literal mystical creature. So, if I were to ask you to imagine what a Chinese version of a unicorn is, can everyone just kind of like conjure up something in their minds for a little bit? Um, so this is actually the thing that is most frequently referred to as the Chinese unicorn. It's known as a qi ling. Um, And you know, it kind of looks like a unicorn, right? It's, it's, got a, it's a kind of horse-shaped, uh, but it's a little bit off, right? There's a little too much texture to it. It's, are those scales? What's going on with the face? Uh, here's a better look and yeah, we're, we're definitely off-spec at this point, right? Uh, it's on fire, it's got the face of a lion, and it's in a really weird pose because, oh yeah, it flies everywhere because it's so Buddhist that it doesn't want to accidentally step on anything. So, unicorns and chilings actually do have some core things in common, like they're both mythical creatures, and they both have horns. Um, but they serve quite different purposes, and they have very different connotations in the cultures. Uh, so, cheelings show up at the births and deaths of very wise men, um, and women hopefully, uh, and sometimes chase down the wicked and punish them. So in other words, even though the qi-ling is referred to as a Chinese unicorn, it's really pretty different from a unicorn. Like if you try to buy a unicorn online and you got a qi-ling, you would probably want a refund, right? Um, So let's back up a little bit. For the last few years, uh, I've been observing and advising companies on China's internet landscape. I co-founded a consultancy called Magpie Kingdom and we publish a weekly newsletter called Magpie Digest that unpacks trending topics on the Chinese internet and uh, tries to ex- explain the interesting context happening underneath. So put simply, I spend a lot of time translating back and forth between different cultures. I'm really fascinated by the Chinese internet because of how different it is from the internet that I grew up with in the US. Uh, because foreign social media platforms are largely banned, there was a need for domestic strains, if you will, um, and space for them to thrive without being crushed immediately by massive foreign incumbents. And China also has more than enough people, and at this point money, to support the whole ecosystem more or less by itself. So the Chinese internet is kind of this interesting island and as we learned from Darwin, islands are really interesting places to watch things evolve. There's really rapid divergent evolution happening in China on the Chinese internet away from what we would think of as the mainland of the European and American internet. And since I frequently travel back and forth between this ecosystem, I see a lot of cheelings being described as Chinese unicorns and people wanting their refunds, right? Um, I see it both in terms of how the English language media describes uh, Chinese tech companies and also in how companies actually think through their strategies for engaging with the Chinese market. How they plan out their marketing strategies, how they understand their competition. Um, And I want to say that, you know, these analogies are totally natural and totally useful, right? When you're approaching a foreign landscape for the first time, you need these analogies to get your bearings. And these comparisons give us a shortcut. They pack a lot of information into very, very few words so that we can kind of skip ahead and get to the point. Um, When you're first getting to know the landscape, they're absolutely crucial. And, of course, this mode of language is not really unique to writing about the Chinese Internet. We're so familiar with the trope of it's Uber before X that um, my friend Fred uh, actually made a game about it called Pitch Deck that is really, really fun. Um, But when it comes to the Chinese Internet, I think these analogies tend to stick around and become troublesome for two reasons. First, because for most people without a significant connection to China, it can be difficult to experience the online landscape firsthand. There's technical barriers, there's linguistic barriers, there's cultural barriers. Um, and so the thing that's left in our imaginations at the end of the day is just the analogy itself, because most people never get the firsthand experience. And secondly, when it comes to China, there's an additional element of cultural baggage, shall we say, um, because of Chinese texts' well-earned, frankly, reputation for copying. Um, And in the West, this type of copying is really looked down upon and anything that's labeled as being a copy is assumed to be inferior and kind of the desperate product of unoriginality. And that's not necessarily the case in China. So I think we have these mental shortcuts that are rooted in a landscape that we're familiar with and then we impose that onto this new foreign landscape that we're trying to understand. Um, And I think that those impositions blind us to some of the really, really real big differences in the big picture and as Chinese consumers are wielding more buying power than ever and Chinese tech is more and more of a force in the industry, I think we can no longer afford to get the picture wrong. So to try to dig into how we can explore Chinese tech on its own terms, I'm going to tell you another ancient story but not quite as ancient as those pictures of the unicorns. Um, This penguin is a logo for QQ, which was a messaging app in China developed in 1999. Um, The original name of QQ was OICQ because it was basically a straight-up clone of the instant messenger ICQ which maybe some of you remember. Um, And QQ had a very simple enterprise philosophy which was similar to a lot of Chinese companies at the time which were looking to catch up to Western companies that had a bit of a headway, a head start. Um, The plan was basically imitate a successful product and then make incremental improvements to user experience that are targeted at the Chinese market. And this is what it looked like for QQ. So QQ started off as an instant messenger, not so different from ICQ or AIM or anything else that you might be familiar with. Um, ICQ ironically kind of stalled out in 2001 shortly after getting acquired by AOL. But QQ flourished during the 2000s. It rolled out all kinds of new features, things that ICQ never dreamed of and I've frankly never seen in most Western instant messenger apps. Um, things like QQ Show, which was an avatar customization feature, uh, very similar to Korea's SciWorld. QQ Music, which let you share music with your friends before online streaming was really a thing. Uh, QSpace, which was like a blogging social media network, and QQ Pets, think crypto kitties, but very old. Um, and all of that was actually powered, and um, lots and lots and lots of games. And all of that was uh, powered and financed through digital goods. So uh, people could buy virtual currency called Qcoin and then spend that Qcoin on all of these different things accessories, uh, avatar customizations, blog themes, etc. So this decade of experiments led QQ to become a foundational part of the Chinese Internet right when it really mattered. So during the 2000s when the Internet started going mainstream in China, QQ was the dominant messaging platform and it became many people's first experience with the Internet. Um, And thanks to all those microtransactions, it was also really profitable. At a time when Facebook and Twitter were still collecting eyeballs, QQ was racking up a billion dollars a year from its eager fan base. So QQ may have started as a clone, um, but 10 years later, it developed into something that's really more like a full-fledged ecosystem that's so distant from what ICQ um, looked like that it would be unrecognizable. It was a force not just in messaging, but also in social networking and in games. And I tell this story not just because it's a heartwarming, nostalgic story about the good old days, uh, but because it's actually foundational to the Chinese Internet as we know it today. So in 2010, the now very well-resourced company behind QQ, a little operation called Tencent, realized that the spread of mobile could usher in a new era for communications. And so they tasked an internal team to build out a mobile-first messaging app Uh, which would become WeChat, which is now currently occupies a third of all data traffic in China. So what started off as a simple clone is now China's undisputed leader in social media and a global leader in tech investment and games. And I think this story contains a lot of patterns that give us some insight into how to understand these Chinese social platforms on their own terms. So first, Chinese platforms often become chimeras, and a chimera is a mythical creature that, like the Qilin, is kind of a mishmash of many different parts. Part lion, part horse, part snake. And likewise, many Chinese platforms grew out of their original lane by just kind of adding features from all kinds of surprising places, or at least surprising to me, um, forming something that's entirely new and unexpected. So take WeChat, for example, QQ's successor, um, it's grown into this multifunctional super app by absorbing so many features that it's basically just an operating system replacement at this point. I ran out of space. There's, it does many, many more things than this. And while WeChat is certainly an extreme example, a lot of other apps that are described as China's Blink follow this formula too. So Zhihu, which earlier was referenced in the headline as China's Quora did start off as a Q&A site, and that's still one of its core features. But along the way, it's also rolled out live paid Q&A with experts, online education features, a blogging platform, and even a bookstore. I'm sure there's features I just haven't even found yet. It's become this chimeric ecosystem that supports their users' interests in learning through many, many different formats, some of which are really surprising to the silos that we've given to expect. The second point, I think, is that Chinese platforms learn from the whole world. I think certainly in the US, maybe in Europe, there's a tendency to think that tech ideas flow in one direction from us outwards. Right. Um, And I think that's been the default narrative for so long. And maybe it's been the case for a long time. But in China now, this feels very viscerally different based on geography and culture alone, China is attuned to a really wide range of influences that goes beyond Europe and America. So in the case of QQ, you saw that they were lifting uh, business models and feature ideas from Korea. Um, and not just that, but Russia, um, Japan, right? All of these other places. It's paying attention to a different set of the world than we're used to. And I think what's really interesting is that the, what, what's happening when uh, Chinese companies are copying features is that they actually view themselves as students. What they're doing is they're testing out an idea that they've seen work somewhere else on their own very different ecosystem and trying to unpack what works about it. Not so they can just ride that wave, but so they can build on top of that information. So take, for example, this app called Douyin in Chinese, uh, which is known as TikTok internationally. This recently became the number one non-game app on iOS for the whole world, and it's not even available on the US App Store. This app started off as a short music video app, similar to Dubsmash or Musical.ly, which you might be familiar with. It's targeted to people kind of like 15 and under, so don't feel bad if you don't know about it. Um, Douyin is just two years old, but it's already kind of showing off those chimera tendencies. It has its own live streaming app, which is very different from Musical.ly, which rolled out a live streaming component separately. It's done things like try out, try to integrate live trivia like HQ trivia into its own app. Um, and this is my favourite feature uh, which is a really impressive use of image recognition software actually using a phone camera Um, and I haven't seen anything like this in an equivalent uh, Western app I think because it's actually influenced by Japanese pose matching games, right? And this influence is also not just one directional, the Chinese internet is starting to influence Southeast Asia, uh, the rest of the world through its diaspora and there's aspirations to do much more. So because of the previous two points that one, Chinese platforms kind of tend to sprawl into these chimeras and two, that they learn quickly from other parts of the world than here, what you see happening when we try to talk about the Chinese internet in our terms is that the niches don't really map one to one, right? And when that happens, it makes it really easy for us who are still reliant on those analogies and comparisons to just like miss whole things sometimes. Uh, My favorite example of this is a platform called Bilibili, which literally foregrounds the social experience. So this is a short clip of what it's like to watch the trailer for Avengers Infinity War on Bilibili. You can barely see the actual video through what's known as bullet comments, which are just everybody's comments flying past in a time-synced way. Um, it is either nauseating, painful or like the best thrill of your life to watch this depending on the type of person you are. I think you all know which kind I am. Um, the comments range from pure reactions to jokes to really thoughtful critique and this is one of the most influential apps for Chinese youth after, uh, born after the 1990s. This wields enormous cultural clout in China. And one of my favorite things about it actually is that it has a really unusual tactic for ensuring community coherence. So to register an account on the service, you have to pass a 100-question test about anime trivia and site culture within 120 minutes. And this is the simplified version of the test, which used to be even longer and even harder and was referred to as like the Chinese nerd SATs. so Bilibili is a fascinating ecosystem, but it's actually a clone too. It's just a clone of a Japanese website called Nico Nico that's also centered heavily around anime culture. And we just don't have anything like this, right? This isn't China's YouTube. This is China's something else that we don't have. Um, and so even as Bilibili grew solid enough financials to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange and to go public, the conversation around it in the West has just been strangely quiet because we don't really know what to to hold on to when telling the story. So if you're interested in the Chinese internet and you should be given that it's a fascinating place and a hotbed of growth um, and also not to mention the billion potential customers, uh, I want to leave you with a few suggestions about how you can start to think about this biodiverse unique ecosystem on its own terms. So first, get to know China's unicorns up close, and also the smaller woodland creatures as well. Um, go look up a list of companies online and start looking for the chimeras, start understanding where the influences are flowing and actively try to fight that one-to-one mapping. Read sources that go beyond the one to 101. If you keep reading things that just keep saying very, very explaining very basic things, you'll never get to sort of the more advanced critiques. So, aside from our newsletter, which I think is very good, uh, there's also excellent English language uh, coverage of Chinese tech on sites like Tech in Asia and TechNode. And it's important to check out the cultural coverage too to see what's actually going on on these platforms um, on sites like Radii China. And finally, if you're doing business, Make sure that the map you have of this ecosystem is accurate and invest in good cultural translators who really, really understand the landscape and are not just going to try to tell you simple equivalencies. So, earlier I showed you this map while talking about mental shortcuts, but I didn't really explain what it was. Uh, This is a map of the world as Europe knew it in the 1490s and it's likely the same map that Columbus used when trying to sail to the New World. This thing is actually a cartographic masterpiece, but one thing that's really, really noticeable is that the resolution degrades somewhat uh, (laughs) the farther you get away from Europe. And spoiler alert, this did not get him to India. Um, So make sure you have the right maps. Thank you.